Cultivating Place is made possible in part through the generosity of the Caddo Shaw Foundation. Cultivating Place is also made possible through support from the Garden Conservancy. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. As we tend toward summer's end, with the end of summer and fall events and celebrations perhaps in mind, maybe even winter events in the planning, we turn this week to floristry and how and where it intersects with sustainability. And as our guest today shares, how and where it intersects with thoughtfulness. British floral designer Shane Connolly is well known for his world-class floristry and floral design, gracing several weddings within the British royal family, as well as the recent coronation of now King Charles. While his floral design is known for this kind of high-profile event, Shane is also known as one of the preeminent ambassadors for a more sustainable, organic, local, seasonal, and low-waste floral design and floral supply chain. In advance of the Slow Flowers Society welcoming Shane for three days of workshops and events in Seattle from September 29th through October 1st, Shane joins us to share more. Shane, having followed your work for some time, I am so pleased to be joined by you today to talk about these perennially important topics. Welcome to Cultivating Place. What a lovely introduction. Thank you, Jennifer. So I've just introduced you in the way that I perceive you in the world. Will you please introduce yourself just a little more personally to listeners and Include in that, if you can, a distilled kind of importance of plants and flowers or role they play in your life as it stands right now, Shane. Well, I came to the world of flower design, floristry, whatever you want to call it, through a love of gardens, not the other way around. Um, Since I was a child, I have enjoyed growing things. I was the I was the odd child who wanted to grow peas and beans and melons. Actually, was another thing I grew when mm. I was quite young. Mm. I, I discovered the facts of life from growing melons because in those days you had to fertilize them. So, <laughs> gardening was my education. Yeah, but it didn't it didn't occur to me that that would be a a career. And it was. I went to university. I read psychology at university. After that, I realized I absolutely hated psychology and wasn't very good at it. I think that's the other thing. We, we're always drawn to things we are better at, perhaps. And I met some people who had a wonderful garden, and they did flowers for events. In those days, it was called floral decorating. Um, I think that's a little term that has sort of slipped out of out of common usage. It was a constant spry thing. And I'd never heard of it. And I'd never heard or seen such exciting things to do with flowers. And, mm. um, you know, that they could be used to transform an event. They could be used in such a dramatic and thoughtful way. So yeah. that was it. That was that was how it's, so it came totally from a love of growing things. Totally. It, it didn't come from a love of design or a love of color or a love of glamorous parties absolutely not that um and yeah, that's where it's that's where it's come from the soil 
And I think that's a really important foundation for how you approach floral design or floristry or or whatever, however we want to term the work that you do. But I, I also totally think, agree. yeah, I, th- I think somehow as well, the reading for psychology is also important in the arc of your work and how um, how you have come to hold it and then advocate for it in the world. Mm. Do, do you agree with that? Well, that's interesting. I mean, I think any degree teaches you how to research. So that is one aspect I did enjoy of my degree, mm-hmm. that you're, you're, you're asked a question and you go to books and you go to various sources to find an answer. And that's what I particularly enjoy in my work. Mm-hmm. So if you, Jennifer, came to me and said, I want to have a party for my 30th birthday, I know it's coming up, Jennifer, then <laughs> I would I would want to find out what about what do you like? It wouldn't be just about colors. I hate when people say my favorite flowers are peonies and roses and I like pink. And I, that's not interesting. I want to hear what you've done in your life. What do you've, you know, do you enjoy? making people feel very homely or do you prefer them to be spoiled? Do they do you prefer things to feel very grand or do you, do you like it when it feels incredibly relaxed, but organized? You know, I want, to, I want to see where you live and I want to see how you live so that your party can look like you rather than looking like you've walked into the set of a Kardashian film. <laughs> you know, that's the problem. Well, and it's interesting because I think, again, um, you know, to bring it back to this in a way, mm. and to that famous uh, Alfred Austin, I think his name was, quote, show me your garden and I'll tell you who you are. Absolutely. And, right. And it's it's that these are more than just decorative objects which is why i think that term has fallen fallen away because absolutely yeah as as you are demonstrating it it's not just about the object it's about the process and the relationship and what it tells us about being human right and being part of nature mm-hmm. and and that is something that i've always felt probably instinctively and and subconsciously but when you actually analyze sustainability, it is realizing or the realization that we are just part of nature mm-hmm. and we need therefore to be as kind to nature as we are to our family or our children uh, and realize that we are not more important in the chain of nature. Mm-hmm. And I think I think when you garden, you realize that completely. You know, you feel so protective of your plants. You feel so... Uh, thrilled when, when you get your first grapes or your melons uh, or whatever you whatever you're, you yeah. know it's a disproportionate completely to the amount of effort you've put in you just can't believe it mm-hmm. and i think um that is what sustainability should be about it should be about that reconnection with nature and what an opportunity to do that in the world of floral design you know it is a chance to show people who come to a party or a wedding or a funeral or whatever that it's it's your chance to show them nature at its most beautiful. So before we dive into the evolution of Shane Conley and company, oh and um, I want you to take us back a little bit and just connect a few dots. 
you say that your love of flowers started with a love of gardening and you were one of those kids who just loved to grow things. Where were you born and raised and who were the people and places and plants that seeded that love in you, Shane? I was born in Northern Ireland, in Belfast, just as the so-called troubles were kicking off. So I was born to parents who were older than most of my contemporaries' parents and had been married for 13 years before that, before I came along. And they were very keen amateur gardeners, I think, rather than knowledgeable. They enjoyed their garden very mm. much mm-hmm. and they worked in it. So it was part, to me, that was part of life. I didn't know that's what some people didn't do. And yes, of course, we were lucky to have a garden. But when things were ugly and in Belfast, things were ugly. I was very lucky not to be uh, touched by the troubles at all in my youth, really, except that it was going on all around you. And I felt that the garden was the beautiful thing that you could control, probably, Mm. again, subconsciously. And, you know, when I look back on it, it was very much a typical suburban 1970s, 80s garden. So what plants you were asking? But it's funny, there's a plant called Mimulus, Mm. And you don't see it very often because it's not it's not the most fashionable. And it when I do see it, I always remember my mother's garden and nasturtiums and roses. So I mean, I imagine it must have been it must have been quite brightly coloured. Where there were flowers, they, I think colour was important. Um, we also had things like a Philadelphia, a bride's you know mock orange blossom, which I absolutely adored. That you know. I remember that very vividly. And we had, a, like everyone else, a pink cherry blossom tree, which bloomed in the spring. So there was this connection with seasons. Yeah. And, you know, that, I think that's one of the greatest gifts anyone can give a child. Really to just say, look at that cherry blossom. That means it's spring. And you know, my mother, especially, my mother loved color. She, she was probably the more creative of my mother and father. Uh, and she loved color. She loved making the house beautiful. She loved flowers. She, she was certainly one who brought flowers in from the garden. And for very special occasions, flowers would be bought. And so I do, you know, I do remember the process of going to a flower shop. Yeah. And that that was that was quite a an expensive splurge to yeah. buy flowers for a yeah. special occasion. Wow. I love that connection to seasonality and It's the greatest, I think it's the greatest gift you can give anyone, a child, but it's also one of the greatest gifts we give ourselves or the garden gives to us, right, in in our connection to it, because you can't have peonies all year round. You can't have your roses all year round, which is why they are so magnificent in their moments, right? So I absolutely agree. Anticipation is sometimes even more exciting than the actuality. Right, right, right. I you agree. Know, we, yeah. we, I'm, I'm not very lucky and have a greenhouse in my garden. And there's a peach tree in my greenhouse, a spalliard on the on the wall, which I planted only four years ago. And every year, anticipating those peaches is so exciting. You <laughs> know, is. and then then you get the first one, and it's overwhelmingly delicious. Then you get a bit overwhelmed that there are six all ripened at once. And you make a pie, <laughs> will you eat them? What will you do? And you give two away. It's all that. It's the joy of it. Yeah, 
It is. And that would, if, if they were there all the year round, who would be interested? I would. Exactly. No, no. And I think that is, I think it, nobody would because, no. um, yeah, we think we want them all the time, everywhere, uh, all at once. But yeah. I was once teaching in New York mm -hmm. and after I was talking about seasonality, which I, I mean, I sort of can't understand that there isn't a more, more of an emphasis in floristry, floral design on the seasons. And this person asked a question. She said, she said, but how do we know what season it is? Mm. And, you know, it is called observing in, in, even in New York, even living in an apartment block in New York, you can walk around the streets. You can see things growing in people's window boxes. You can see things growing in central park. You can go to the botanical gardens. You can grow a few things of your own and see, you know, when do the bulbs come up? When is it spring? It's, it's the most wonderful observational skill to develop in a child and it can be still be developed in an adult definitely yeah so you grow up in belfast in this yes. very interesting time to to mm -hmm. a family who who does germinate this love and connection and observation in your in yourself mm -hmm. and you go on to decide you don't want to be in psychology and you discover the idea of floral design and actually the kind of amazing miracle that you can actually make a life out of arranging and 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 sourcing gorgeous seasonal flowers to celebrate other people's life thresholds. I mean, that must have been, I think it is for everybody, a, a kind of moment where you're like, what? How did I get so I lucky? No, no, I don't think I even remotely analyzed it. <laughs> I don't think I even realized that I had gotten lucky until maybe 20 years in. You know, or Maybe when I published my first book, because I don't know, when you're in your 20s and, and you start something, I wasn't even aware I'd started a business. You know, mm. it, it, I, I opened a bank account with my name followed by flowers. And that was just to make sure that payments went into the right place. Right. Uh, and I didn't know I'd started a business. I didn't know what, I had no business plan. It was it was so ramshackle for the first while, really. Uh, so I didn't analyze it and think, gosh, for a long time, I'm not even sure if I still have analyzed it. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. We're speaking this week with British floral designer Shane Connolly. A designer to royals among others, Shane is perhaps most importantly known as a tireless advocate for sustainable floristry at all levels. We'll be back for more with our conversation with Shane. Stay with us. Cultivating Place is made possible in part by the Caddo Shaw Foundation. The Caddo Shaw Foundation funds initiatives that empower women and help preserve the planet through the rich intersection of environmental advocacy, social justice, and creativity. Cultivating Place is also made possible through support from the Garden Conservancy, a not-for-profit organization whose mission is to preserve, share, and celebrate gardens and America's gardening traditions. Are you signed up for the Garden Futures Summit hosted by the Garden Conservancy in New York City on September 29th and 30th? 
I hope you are. To find out more about the summit or about upcoming open days throughout the season across the country, also supported by the Garden Conservancy, make sure to head to gardenconservancy.org forward slash education. Hey, it's Jennifer. I keep thinking about what Shane Connolly is sharing here in this conversation, and as you will hear it unfold, so much of the importance of what he is doing and how he is focused on it comes back to the ideas of observation and thoughtfulness. And neither of these things or traits are we born with. They are skills and traits and habits we cultivate. We can learn observation and thoughtfulness, and we can relearn them with practice and intention. Just as we can learn and relearn what a garden is, what gardening is and should be or could be with thoughtfulness and observation and practice. We can, in fact, keep learning and adjusting our gardens and flowers and nature-loving practices to include what we want, what is best for the ecology, the economy, and each other in mind. I know we can. We're back now to our conversation with British floral designer Shane Connolly, an ambassador for sustainable floristry at all levels in the UK and globally. He's an integral part of Slow Flowers in Britain and their showcase British Flowers Week annually. As we come back, Shane is sharing more about the evolution of his own floral style and how sustainability as a concept became a focus of his work. When I met these people who did who did flowers, I was brought to see their garden, Michael Goulding and Elizabeth Baker. That was perhaps the moment where I thought this could be interesting. I would love to know more. And they let me help them. I was working as a research psychologist for one year in London. And that was really because I wanted to leave Belfast. You know, I really thought I want to go somewhere else. My parents were very sad that that was what I thought, but that's life. And I went to London and that's where I met these people. And after a year, there were two things happening. First of all, I knew I didn't want to go back to Belfast yet. I didn't know what the long-term plan was, but I also knew that I didn't want to work as a research psychologist. So I asked them for a job and they said, absolutely not. You have no experience. You know, you've helped us. You've carried buckets of water and brushed up for a year uh, on the odd weekend. You need to work full time for a company. And they got me a job with a company called Pulbrook and Gould. And Pulbrook and Gould was one of the really wonderful old English flower companies, a shop which also did uh, small gardens, actually, but it also did lots of really lovely parties. And they they were completely uh, children of Constance Spry, and the whole ethos was about seasons and gardens. And the flowers always were seasonal, always British. In those days, 
you know, British grown local. I mean, we didn't, we just thought they looked nicer. We didn't think we're saving the planet here. We just thought they looked better. And that again, I was so lucky to go to them because that it tied in with with what I really liked about floristry and flower design. It, it was that whole thing about bringing the garden into the house or into a, a beautiful room for a party or into a church. So I was very lucky. And after being with them for a few years, friends had started as they do, you know, would you do my wedding? Would you do my party? Would you? So I was suddenly doing things and I had to make a decision and I couldn't really work for them full time if I was going to be doing these things. Mm-hmm. So that's when I started. That was 1989. Mm-hmm. I opened the bank account, a separate bank account for work, I called it. <laughs> but I didn't know what was, I didn't think, oh, in five years, I want to have this or in 15 years, I want to be there or I'm going to target those people as my clients. It was completely <laughs> not like that at all. <laughs> right, right. I admire people who do that, but that was not me. And fast forward, you your business grows quite vigorously. And by, so this was 1989, by I think 2005, you're doing some of the biggest floral work that maybe people can think of, including designing weddings for royal families, among other things. But that is one of the things you are well known for. It's amazing. As you're going along, at what point does sustainability become a word that's even on your radar as something you need to be paying attention to? You know, that's a very interesting question. I wrote my third book, I think, in 1998. It might be my second book. Anyway, yes, my second book. And I was asked to go to America to give a talk about my book in Florida. And I went to Florida for the AIFD conference and that was all fine. And then the next year, I was asked to go to San Francisco to speak with to speak at Bouquets to Art. So that would have been about 2000, 2001. And I had never been so aware in the market, the flower market in San Francisco, I had never been so aware of the pride in locally grown things. Mm. Um, and that I always think that that was one of the first times I really thought, my goodness, there is something to be proud about. You know, I used the, I used local seasonal stuff as much as I could in England in those days because it was, to me, more my style. Mm-hmm. It wasn't sustainable, but, but I mean, it wasn't because of sustainability. But in California, in San Francisco, in the early noughties, they were talking about sustainability. Mm-hmm. And so I always say that I actually first heard about it in America, mm. amazingly. Go America. Um, in America, <laughs> yes, exactly. Fly your well, flag high and be proud. Well, yeah, but the fact is that the reason, one of the reasons or a couple of the reasons that this was on our radar at that time was because our floral industry and in fact the global floral industry had moved in such a dramatically different direction, right? Between the time that you, you know, founded your first shop and those early 2000s, the world had changed completely in the way it grew and sourced and sold flowers and Mm. not for the better. No. So talk a little bit about what you experienced 
as some of the hallmarks of unsustainable flower growing and sourcing and distributing that would then lead you to to help define what sustainable floristry needed to begin including again? Gosh, um, I think, you know, there's this awful question of taste. Mm. And I've been incredibly lucky that 99% of the clients who come to me come to me because they like what I do and they don't like the type of floral design you're 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 talking about from the you know the actually I would say from the late 80s in Europe because when I started doing flowers at Poolbrook and Gould it was considered a bit old fashioned even though I loved I loved everything about it but there were people who were doing things that were much more densely packed more tropical flowers more exotic colors hugely overblown Mm. rather than exquisite. And I've never liked the look of that. Um, of course, sometimes, you know, in the early days, you, you know, a client would ask for it and you think, okay, but I never felt I did it well, ever. And the more I thought about it as the noughties advanced, the more I realized that actually it wasn't just about the taste and the look of it. I didn't like the feel of it. I didn't like the feel that things had been brought around the world three times and sprayed with goodness knows what. I didn't like it. And it also was too detached from the garden and the seasons. Mm -hmm. And and to me, a bit bewildering. You know, it was sort of um it, it, and you know, if I went into a flower market in Korea, I wanted to see Korean things that were grown at that time of year. I didn't want to see something that was grown, you know, in Colombia and flown to Holland to be then flown to Korea. I didn't want that. And it was the same in England, wherever I went, wherever I went. And I sort of started, I think that that was my look rather than my ethos at first. And then I realized that actually it was something that was so important. I was doing it because I liked the look of it, but, yeah. and I liked the feel of it. And I, right. I then realized that actually there was a great problem. And through people like Deborah, uh, and through you know several really highly motivated and motivating designers, you, you feel suddenly that you aren't alone, and that there is a major problem. Mm -hmm. And you know, as I got to be the to be lucky enough to do the, the higher profile things again for clients who totally bought into my ethos, mm -hmm. that has to be. Uh, said, I mean, that can't be overemphasized. That would have been, it would have been a terrible dilemma to be doing high profile things for people who didn't want to buy into the ethos. Right, um, right. So I then realized that actually I was very lucky. I could both do what I liked, do it in the way I felt was important, and I could promote the whole idea of sustainability and educate. I think that is the big word, educate. Mm -hmm. Because I think it isn't people being willful. Not often is it people being willfully destructive. No. I think no. it's just an ignorance um, coupled with an ego. Because sometimes the ego gets in the way and people want to show off, both clients and florists. Yeah, yeah. But I, I think that that obscuring of what is happening and what it means that it's happening that way, that, you know, 
uh, 98% of our roses are grown somewhere far away yeah. under mm-hmm. completely unnatural conditions. And then all yeah. of the, you know, fuel is flown them back and, and then they don't even resemble what we originally loved in the first place. Like sometimes I think our world is just so busy and so mm-hmm. fraught with other things we're worrying about or paying attention yeah. to yeah. that we don't realize until later that we shouldn't be using floral foam or the yeah. consequences of, you know, fossil fuel laden roses in our grocery stores. And also the the, the things that they are sprayed with, because oh. again, there is no, there, there are no regulations about that. In, in most of the countries they come into, they aren't even analyzed. You know, they're just uh, they're just accepted as part of nature. Yeah. And not only what they're sprayed with, but what happens to the people who are spraying them and how that that is treated. Right. There, there's just this Absolutely. web of yeah. a tangled mess of consequences based on Absolutely. the idea of wanting to have all the flowers all the time everywhere. And 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 a very difficult one to discuss because as as one always has to remember about sustainability, it isn't just planetary. There's also economic sustainability and mm-hmm. social sustainability. Apparently, one of the real uh, annoyances to the revolutionaries in Russia at the early part of the 20th century was that the Tsarina had lilac grown for her all the year round in the heated greenhouses of St. Petersburg. Mm. Um, and they, you know, it was used in evidence of her of her immorality and her her completely selfish ways. First of all, she probably didn't know that was what was happening. She was probably just, you know, delighted that she was being given lilac because she liked it. But it strikes me as very similar to what we're doing at the moment. We are having these things to satisfy some ridiculous craving, not 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 at all a necessity. And we're having them grown by people who live in countries and they're 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 probably health-wise suffering incredibly long term to produce mm-hmm. these roses, to be flown to Canada, to be flown to America, to be flown to England for people who are so rich that they don't even care. Yeah. It's it's I just can't condone it. I can't I know it's it's giving work, but but right. And 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 mm. there's better ways to do that. There's better ways to produce flowers so. in the world and support other people in their economies, it. yeah, I and places as well. So, and especially as we're as we're sort of approaching, you know, annihilation, when you see what's happening to the planet, it just is. It's just not. It's not um, reconcilable in my head. Yeah, yeah. And so much of this has led you to becoming this real ambassador and voice for the idea of of sustainability in floristry even in you know in the work that you do for very large events what are yeah. some of the the hallmarks of i mean i think you've already mentioned some of them seasonality as local as you can as organic as you can but give us maybe some more uh tangible examples uh, that you are putting to work in you know say the the royal weddings or the royal coronation or some of your big dinner parties or in some of your workshops that you are teaching to other florists on how to not use foam on how to source locally on how to repurpose or re um you know reuse and grow the plants that are that are in your designs 
That was a very long question. I feel <laughs> <laughs> which, which bit will I go for? Um, the 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 most important thing is thoughtful. Mm. And I use that word a lot in quotes to clients, in classes that I give uh, with my team. We all say, what's the most thoughtful way to do this? And by that, I mean, not setting art just to impress, but setting art to move and touch people and to then think what would be the most effective thing for that wedding? What would be what would be a really thing that would touch both the, the the couple and in the case of a royal wedding and and the and the public what would be and for instance for the now prince and princess of wales their wedding had the avenue of trees and those i mean done because we needed scale we 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 we, we all wanted to think of something that was sustainably and effectively possible in that space and you know, to use trees seemed to me quite obvious. Mm-hmm. Um, and then those trees are still growing, and and right. th- th- you know, that to me is one of the most thoughtful things you can do at anybody's wedding: have things that are growing so that they can give them to their guests, to their family, plant them in their own garden. You know, use herbs, plant a herb garden in memory of the wedding. Use flowering rose plants, plant a rose garden. If you don't have a garden of your own. There are incredible charities who take plants. Um, we we have we work with several wonderful charities in London who will take plants and plant them in areas where people don't have plants, but beautify ugly bits of London. And that applies wherever you would go. There's also a wonderful in London again, a charity called Floral Angels, who repurpose flowers after events and yeah. bring them to hospices bring them to homes for for abused spouses people who've never had flowers yeah and you know that's what happened after the coronation all the flowers from the coronation went to floral angels and then they were brought to hospices to mm. um you know just people who 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 had a week looking at those flowers and feeling special mm-hmm. we got the flowers from the king and queen's coronation you know they they feel special yeah it's it, it's that's been thoughtful um yeah. and i think if you're being thoughtful, then you will be seasonal. You will work out what could happen to the flowers afterwards. You will work out where you're sourcing them because you're trying to be thoughtful. And you would, you know, floral foam is like the bete noir of the floral industry. It's, um, and I always say to people, it's the easiest thing not to use. It's just the easiest. There's no excuse to use something that is so damaging to the environment. There's no excuse. That's the bit. I can't, I, can't, I mean, the floral foam argument, oh, I just can't work out why anyone still needs to argue about that one. I don't really. either. Yeah. It's, yeah. Um, there's no, there's no, I can't think of any if or but. No, it's an easy, it's an easy substitute totally. uh, and, and relearning of just Absolutely. what became a bad habit. Just, it was a, a, exactly yeah. that. It's a bad habit. And, you know, people say, oh, but I, you know, like I can choose to use it if I want to. I think you shouldn't. <laughs> yeah. I hate to sound um, authoritative, but I, I, I feel it shouldn't even be sold. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. We're speaking this week with British floral designer Shane Connolly, a designer to royals, among others. 
Shane is perhaps most importantly known as a tireless advocate for sustainable floristry. We'll be back for more in our conversation with Shane. Stay with us. Hey, it's Jennifer again. It's just one month until my newest book, What We Sow, on the personal, ecological, and cultural significance of seeds officially publishes. Woo! I got my advances in hand recently, and it is nothing short of amazing to me to sign these books in gratitude to so many of you who have and do support the weekly work of Cultivating Place in its mission to engage, encourage, expand, and embolden gardeners on the ground everywhere to keep growing the world better. I could not afford to do this work week in and week out without your support. So two quick reminders. Pre-ordering what we sow is a clear sign of support. Yes, there should be a smile face emoji and a prayer hands emoji here. You can pre-order the book from me at cultivatingplace.com forward slash books or from anywhere you get your books. If you pre-order from anyone other than me and would like a signed book plate to put in your book, please send me an email at cultivatingplace at gmail.com with the pre-order details and your mailing address, and I will happily get a lovely signed book plate in the mail to you. Finally, if you are or have been a financial supporter of Cultivating Place in the last 12 months, adding up to $100 or more, and you live in the U.S., I have or will be sending you a signed copy of the book as a heartfelt thank you. If you're not sure that I have your best mailing address, make sure to update that with me also by sending me an email. Again, my email address is cultivatingplace, all one word, at gmail.com. And it's not too late. You can become a one-time contributor of $100 or more, or a recurring monthly supporter of Cultivating Place at $8 or more per month, and I will happily send you a signed copy of the book between now and when it publishes on September 19th. As always, this work, this newest book even, is all about working together in thoughtfulness and observation and growing the world better. So thank you all for being here with me on this journey of growing really good plants, really good places, and really good people. We're back now to our conversation with Shane Connolly, British floral designer and an ambassador for sustainable floristry at all levels. In the United Kingdom, Shane is an integral part of Slow Flowers There and their showcase British Flowers Week annually. 
As we come back to our conversation, Shane is sharing more about some of his own floral design heroes, including Constance Spry, whose work and whose sustainability principles he is in many ways resurrecting for modern times. When I first met Michael and Elizabeth, who who were my inspiration in the whole world of flowers, they gave me, for some reason, a biography of Constance Spry. I had heard of her because my mother had a cookery book, so did every bride of the 50s. And I remember reading that biography and thinking, what an extraordinary woman. I mean, not just what an extraordinary woman, whatever, you whatever, because she had, she had, you know, she had she she had made a company and 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 founded a whole business in the in the eras when women were not encouraged to work. You know, it was it was quite something what she did. So rolling forward to 2021, uh, when when I did the, the the exhibition about her at the Garden Museum in London, I mean that was an extraordinary opportunity to um, bring her into the public eye more and to show people that actually what she was teaching and what she was advocating in the nineteen. 19- 20s and 30s, well, the 1930s and 40s were her heyday, I feel. After that, the company became so big that it was a very diluted spry. Mm, um, mm-hmm. And so, I mean, she was an amazing, amazing educator. That was her passion. She was an amazing gardener. She always said, above and beyond everything else, I'm first and foremost a gardener. And, you know, her whole approach was from the garden. I think her example of seasonality and thinking about what would be the most beautiful thing you could do with a flower, each flower, and treating them individually and treating them, old-fashioned word, with respect mm. and appropriateness was was something that I will always embrace. Um, and I think a lot of the flower world has gone away from that because Spry became old-fashioned you know, she she encouraged the idea that everyone could do flowers, everyone. It was something not for the elite, and it should not be something that people couldn't afford. And I think by doing that, that encouraged lots more people to want to do flowers. It was suddenly a career. And like all careers, not everyone's good at it. Yeah, I, I think that's an interesting perspective and, um, and an important one, because again, we aren't all made to do everything, right? We are I'm, not. I'm never... I am not going to be a great floral designer, Shane, but you are. <laughs> I and I am not I'm not going to be a great doctor ever, but I no, am well, you know, we all we all have our callings. Yeah. So so Shane, in your experience, which is now long and global, what are some of the hallmarks of the best florists? Do you know, I think the best gardeners cut flowers and bring them into the house. And the best florists are also gardeners. And if you don't have that connection, I'm just not sure how easy it is as a career. Uh, I really feel that is the link. And the, 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 be- the people who I consider the best and most successful have a huge passion for nature. And they may not have a garden of their own, but they know about gardens and they want to visit gardens. They don't just want to see the latest collection on the fashion runway. They want to go and see a garden 
and and I would I would definitely say, in my opinion, that is the best route to flowers gardens and be a gardener. Think like a gardener. Think mm, think like think that. like a gardener, and and that will bring you to the, the the right place to be a really brilliant flower designer. Beautiful. You have an upcoming th- now three day. Uh, three days of events in Seattle, September 29th, 30th, and October 1st. What are your greatest hopes for this event? Um, and it includes some sort of smaller, actual hands-on workshops and yes. a speaking event. Yep. What what do you what do you hope that that people attending will get out of this and um and the messages you're bringing, Shane? Gosh, well, I mean, all I want to do is to make people think before they jump mm-hmm. with flowers, to make them think where the flowers are coming from, to make them think how they might be more, I mean, sustainable for want of a better word, but just might be more reconnected to nature. Mm-hmm. I don't want to teach anybody to do anything. I want to inspire people to find it within themselves because really that is where it comes from. And, you know, if you don't have a deep, deep love of nature and the planet maybe flowers aren't your right career um maybe maybe you haven't realized you've got that deep connection and i would like to help you find it so that people feel inspired um and you know it's not because i'm great it's the inspiration comes from within your own head but sometimes it takes something to unlock it and so i would like to encourage people to look at what's outside the window as well as what's in the vase in front of them and to try to make that connection back again and to realize that the you know that the, the all the flowers they get come from the soil they don't come from a <laughs> they don't come from a wholesaler's somewhere along the line they came from the soil and what are we doing to that soil it's it's uh, so that's what i would love i would love people to walk away and to change to enjoy their practice more, to change it, to become more enjoyable. Because if you're restricted by the idea of seasons, and I use the word restricted in a in a very um, loose way there, because I would perhaps say if you're inspired by the idea of seasons, it makes your job easier. You know, I'm not yearning for peonies at all. I don't want to do them. Uh, whereas some people have sleepless nights because the, the brand of of makeup that they're doing a, a shoot for have told them it has to be peonies and they're having sleepless nights because the peonies might derive from New Zealand on November the 6th. That's hopeless. You know, there'll be something that is beautiful and gives the message of the, of the brand much more clearly. If only you are inspired by nature. And I, um, I feel that's very strongly. Yeah. And I think if you don't have, a, a deep love for nature and the planet. It is a true connection and falling in love with flowers that provides one of our greatest access points to yes. to a deep interest in in care for totally agree. Yeah. I mean, I, I wish all children had the chance to grow things. Mm. Um and that that I think is something that a lot of schools are encouraging. You know, it can even be even be sprouting seeds on a piece of tissue paper and yeah. and and you know, growing mustard and cress. We did that as children. And I didn't like mustard or cress, the taste of it, but my goodness, the eating of it was a thrill. Um, and it's just it's it's that 
right from the start. But then maybe we think that's not about design and floristry should all be about fashion and design. And I I want to burst that bubble. Mm. Um, and I, I also want people to realize they don't have to, their, their wedding doesn't have to look like a celebrity's wedding. It yeah. could be much more beautiful, much more thoughtful and interesting. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's really important. Yeah. And, and you know, back to uh, wanting children to be able to grow or, or anybody to be able to grow from, from seed and, and see that, it, it really connects to one of the things you describe uh, your work as on your website, and that is floral alchemy, because it's not it's not just about flowers, right? And it's not because there are fruits and there are leaves and there are seeds and there are um, all kinds of of natural inspirations Absolutely. and bits in everything Absolutely. that you do. And part of it is that magic, and it's it's it's, it's that magic of getting your hands in the soil, mm-hmm. and and the feeling of getting your hands in the soil might not need soil for, 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 for some of events or parties, but it's that feeling of getting really in contact. What, you know, it might be something like an empty snail shell that you put on, on a, on a bowl of fruit with just a few flowers through it. And suddenly that speaks, that brings it, that brings everything to life. And, you know, and makes people say, oh, gosh, isn't that amazing? Isn't that, you know, I wonder, did the snail eat that? <laughs> that sort of thing. <laughs> did it eat the snail? It's it's those sorts of not ruling out anything as not being beautiful enough to be used in the art of floral design. Yeah. Finally, one of your uh, beloved books, A Year in Flowers, Inspiration for Everyday Living, is out this year in paperback. And a lot of your philosophy and methodology, but also your aesthetics, your your feel as well as look, are in this book. If you if you were going to be on a desert island, Shane, and you were only going to have five plants to grow or design with for the rest of time, what would those five plants be, and and why? Goodness, uh, oh, ah, oh, lordy. I would probably have one herb. Okay. Tarragon or rosemary, because it's pretty, mm-hmm. it's they're, they're both pretty robust, because that would give me the chance to use them to flavor food and mm-hmm. and just to be able to eat nature. So that would be very mm-hmm. nice. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm going to just have to presume that the climate of my desert island is very adaptable. So, yes. so I will have, I'll have those herbs. I would love to have Lily of the Valley because the scent of that, I think, is one of the most special things ever. And I would quite happily wait every year all on my own on, the, on my desert island for my Lily of the Valley to bloom in late April and May, which is what happens in England. So it might be different on my desert island. Um, there is an extraordinary shrub which blooms in the winter called Winter Sweet, Chimenanthus precox. And Chimenanthus has a scent that is beyond description, in my opinion. And it flowers at Christmas. Uh, And I mean, again, that would just make me realize on my desert island, I'm in winter now. And I would have the joy of that scent coming across. I mean, it, it travels across the garden. 
Uh, I would also, um, have I run out of plants yet? Have I got one? No, no, no. You only have three. We have two more to go, Shane. Oh, wow. Hellebores. Okay. I absolutely adore hellebores. I, I adore their colors and their lack of color, that just incredible richness that that is, again, a joy in the winter, a total joy in the winter. And then finally, I would have to have a bulb of some sort because I don't mind if it's a lily to do a summer blooming or if it's a, a, a bulb like Narcissi, uh, um, pheasant eye Narcissi, something that I could, again, the idea of planting a bulb is another very special thing um, for a child, for an adult. It's got great, it gives you great um, optimism and hope. And you put this really uninspiring thing in the ground and you live in the hope and trust that it's going to come up and flower. So I would definitely have a bulb of some sort. Beautiful, beautiful. And every one of those speaks to um, the alchemy, the magic that plants are in in our world and Absolutely. and in our in our designs and dreams, I yeah, think. Yeah. so. It's mm. it's it's absolutely getting back to that that I think is is the the only thing that's important. And that that is then sustainability. You know, what I've just said are flowers from each of the seasons practically accidentally, because that's just that's just, you know, the only way I could imagine working. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, why would you want floral foam to range any of them? You think, oh, I don't need that anymore. And then you would, you know, you would, you would be sustainable. Yeah. It would have happened. <laughs> it would have happened. And, and that, and that is the point is the full circle. Yes. Um, yes. And, uh, and being able to, to have it self-sustain as Absolutely. well. Oh, Shane Conley, I am so pleased to speak with you and just thank you for your work and thank you for your tireless advocacy. And um, I hope you have a fantastic event in Seattle. That is really kind, Jennifer. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Um, And well, I look forward to meeting you maybe in Seattle. Okay. Thank you so much. British floral designer Shane Connolly is well known for his world-class floristry and floral design, gracing several weddings within the British royal family as well as the recent coronation of now King Charles. While Shane's floral design is known for this kind of high-profile event, Shane is also known as one of the preeminent ambassadors for a more sustainable, organic, local, seasonal, and low-waste floral design world. Shane Connolly and company are an integral part of Slow Flowers in Britain and their showcase British Flowers Week, celebrated at the end of June annually. In advance of the Slow Flowers Society welcoming Shane for three days of workshops and events in Seattle, Washington, September 29th through October 1st of this year, Shane joined us this week to share more. For more information about these events, please see slowflowerssociety.com forward slash events. 
Join us again next week when, whether you can believe it or not, we are turning our thoughts to back to school season in the first of a multi-part series on horticultural and ecological curriculum and studies at a variety of levels in the U.S. We start off at Miami of Ohio in Oxford, Ohio. That's next week right here. Listen in. Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio, a service of CAP Radio, licensed to Chico State Enterprises. Cultivating Place is made possible in part by listeners just like you through the support button at the top right-hand corner of every page at cultivatingplace.com. Cultivating Place is also made possible through the generosity of the Caddo Shaw Foundation and the Garden Conservancy. The Cultivating Place team includes producer and engineer Matt Fiddler, tech and web support from Angel Haracha, weekly show transcripts by Doulis Transcription, and communications support from Sheila Stern. We're based on the traditional and present homelands of the Machupta Indian tribe of the Chico Rancheria. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.